Warning, the following show contains explicit language. Certain people should not listen to this show, such as children and panty-waist adults who cry like 12-year-old little girls when they hear profanity. Welcome back, my friends. It is a pleasure to have you back with me again today. I'm going to talk about something a little bit unusual. I normally talk about things that are topical, and this is absolutely not. (laughs) I want to talk about my experience working, uniform, badge gun, on the streets during the 1992 Los Angeles riots. Now, let me explain how this came up. Something was on Facebook about it, and I commented that it was a an incredible experience for me personally, and, I, and incredible doesn't mean good. I mean, obviously, riots are bad, um, but it was an intriguing experience. How's that? For me to be on the street during the riots, and a lot of people said, oh, we'd love to hear about that. Well, <laughs> okay, so here we are. Before I share my personal experiences with you, let's take a little walk down memory lane and remember exactly what the 1992 Los Angeles riots were about. They jumped off just hours after a Simi Valley jury acquitted four officers on charges of assault and use of excessive force. And of course, this was all pertaining to Rodney King. And we remember uh, the Halliday video that was released on KTLA in Los Angeles and then went nationwide from there and caused huge brouhaha. By the way, let me just take a moment before I get on and tell you my interpretation of what you saw on that video of Rodney King, what has now been known historically as Rodney King beating. I'm not going to get into the whole thing about what led up to the moment where we see Rodney King on the ground and we see officers striking him repeatedly with a baton, but I will tell you that in my estimation, having worked the street and also in a supervisory role, that the, the, the culpable party in that was Sergeant Stacy Kuhn, and here's why. And after I share this with you, you can go find this on YouTube or wherever and, and look at this for yourself. The officers were doing something that's taught in the academy called pain compliance. You want somebody to do something, and you're giving them a verbal command, and they're not doing it. So you take your baton, or whatever means of delivering the pain you happen to have in this case with Rodney King, it was batons. So you take the baton, and you strike, 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 and then you issue the command. Now, in this case with Rodney King on the ground, the first command was probably roll on, roll over onto your stomach. And the second command they wanted was put your hands behind your back. That would have been the sequence of events. So let's say he was not on his stomach. So it's strike, 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 get on your stomach. Non-compliance, strike, 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 get on your stomach. And the idea there is if they want the pain to stop, they'll comply. That's why it's called pain compliance. Now, if you watch the video, or at least I'll say what I saw, I saw these officers, one of them, strike, 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 get on your stomach, as an example of a command. And then the next one, strike, 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 get on your stomach, strike, 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 get on your stomach. Pretty soon, the suspect, in this case, Rodney King, has no idea what the fuck is going on or what is wanted of him because from his perspective, he's hearing three or four cops screaming at him simultaneously, screaming over one another, and he's being beaten nonstop without a pause to comply. And yeah, Sergeant Kuhn was standing right there. Uh, Had I been standing right there, I would have been like, stop, (laughs) the fuck are you doing? Jesus Christ, don't you guys have some professionalism? You designate one, maybe, two people, depending on circumstances, to deliver the pain compliance. And that's it. But this free-for-all, boom, 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 boom. It's like, where does that stop? You know, it's like, you've probably seen this in incident videos before, too, where 
One cop is screaming, show me your hands. And the other cop is screaming, don't move. And the other cop is screaming, get on your knees. What the fuck is the suspect supposed to do, right? So that is exactly the situation I saw with Rodney King. So to me, the sole culpability rests with Coons as a supervisor who, right there who could have stopped it all. And of course, LAPD's training that's like, okay, so what if there's three or four of you there? How does that work with a pain compliance, pain compliance equation when there's three or four of you? One more little storytelling before I get on to the actual <laughs> guts of the riot. Uh, in the wake of the riot, Tom Bradley, who was the mayor of Los Angeles at the time, he initiated something called the Christopher Commission. And the, I'm not going to get into the whole Christopher Commission thing, but one of the outcomes from the Christopher Commission is it released a list of the officers who had the most complaints against them for allegations of excess violence, right? Or excessive use of force, as it's called in the vernacular. The top five, I don't remember who the, who the four, first four were, but number five was a good friend that I'd worked with often and uh, far my senior, I think 14 years my senior, former Navy SEAL on SEAL Team One. We're just going to call him Frank for the sake of this. He's long retired now. And I learned a hell of a lot from Frank, I want to be clear, but I, I was, my makeup is such that I took those things that were of value from Frank and the things that I looked at and said, what is that? I, I didn't adopt those into myself in my way of policing. So, and Frank and I are still friends to this day, and I do not approve of all the things he did. Let me be very clear about that. There are some very questionable things he did on the street and in his personal life, and we're just going to leave that alone. But here's the funny thing about this. The first four people on the list all quit within a couple months of the list coming out because they were targeted, right? You're the, you're, you're the top four for excessive use of force complaints? Yeah, where are you going in the department? You might as well just retire. But Frank, um, he soldiered on, and he eventually got an attorney, and through the uh, Los Angeles Police Union, he eventually got a really sweet gig of all places in the training division. <laughs> Yeah, LAPD, gotta love it. Frank spent another, I don't know, four or five years doing that, and then he retired with, I think, 32 years on the job. So on to the actual riots. Three days, obviously 24 hours in each day. I think during the entire three days, I got maybe seven, eight, or nine hours of sleep on the street almost continuously the whole time. Uh, let me start by saying the experience was surreal. And let me explain what I mean by that. And um, when you're in uniform on the street, you are constantly somebody who attracts attention. Uh, you pull up in a black and white, or you, even if it's a civilian colored dual purpose car, you get out, you're in uniform, you got a partner, you're walking around. You attract the public eye. You're always under, you're always garnering attention. To some extent, you're always under scrutiny of the public. Even if it's friendly public, there are usually a bunch of eyes on you, right? And then there's depending on the agency, there is some accountability or there's very little accountability. So you, you do have to watch your P's and Q's, which was never an issue for me because my ethical and moral construct is so much above um, what agencies require from their officers. It was never a problem for me. Uh, my ethos every day, every single, well, night, when I sat my butt behind the wheel of that cruiser, every single night, the thought that in my head was, how can I make this community better which does not mean putting a bunch of people in jail. That's not necessarily the answer. How can I make the community that I serve better tomorrow than it is today? That was the ethos I had every single day. And that does not mean being a hard ass. It does not mean being excessively violent. It doesn't mean any of the things that so often wrongly define police work. So when I say it was surreal, what I mean is 
that entire construct I just described, where you're constantly garnering public attention and you're you're being observed. Now, this was back in the 90s, so that no, everybody didn't have cameras in their cell phones and no one was filming you. That was incredibly rare. Um, whether or not you conducted yourself pro- properly was to a great extent unto your own moral and ethical structure. So... When I say it was surreal, during the riots, that whole entire dynamic disappeared. Uh, First of all, I worked a lot during those three days at night. Let's say I put in a 20-hour day. A good deal of that was from sundown to sunup, right? And in many areas of the city, in order to try and suppress things, the mayor had ordered or the police commission had ordered the power turned off. So when I say hours of darkness... (laughs) We're talking about real darkness, not like where the sun goes down, but every light in the community is on. No, this was pitch black. So the surreal nature was, I was at, professionally, for the first time in my life, professionally, free from all societal constraints. This may sound weird, but it's true. When I was alone, which happened on several occasions during those three days, when I was alone, I could have done to anyone, anything I chose to do with zero ramifications, zero consequence. That's kind of a surreal feeling, right? It's like, okay, so I've got this uniform, I've got this badge, it marks me out, I've got this gun, I can actually, if I so choose, I have the power to take a life, which normally is tightly, tightly constrained, right? By both the Constitution, by law, by court decisions, by department policy, whatever you have. It's very tightly constrained policy, as it should be. But now, that entire thing was flipped on its head. Anytime I was alone, if I saw a looter running away and I was by myself, let's say, around the corner of a building, I could have brought my weapon out. Press, press. <laughs> nah, he's gone. I would never do that, but I'm just saying. That level of freedom was there. There was nobody. And there was gunshots all over the place, right? All the time. Nobody would have distinguished, had I chosen to do that, nobody would have distinguished my gunshot from a gunshot they heard 47 seconds earlier down the street. So this is what I'm saying. It was surreal. There was absolutely no constraints, no boundaries upon my personal behavior, except what I imposed on myself. And I'm, I don't want to say this. I don't want to sound like I'm patting myself on the back because I'm really not. Um, I look back and I am pleased with the man I was. Uh, nothing untoward happened. I didn't take advantage of that freedom, if we can call it that. I didn't take advantage of that one little bit, Uh, despite the fact that the system, the establishment, would have allowed me to get away with anything. I still, 100% of the time, conducted myself within the confines of my own moral and ethical structure. The comment that I made on social media that got people interested, they said, oh, we'd like to hear more about this, is I mentioned that in the middle of the riots, I'd gotten out of my unit on the sidewalk with the citizens who were heavily armed hanging out on the sidewalk because they knew the cops couldn't do anything about it. Like, L.A. is not a gun town, right? L.A. is very anti-gun. So if you are a person of color, you would never in a million years go out on the sidewalk holding a shotgun, a rifle, with a, with a pistol tucked into your belt. You would never do that. I mean, you would be targeted, dragged to the ground, <laughs> handcuffed, transported, booked, and tried faster than you could, whatever. I'm just saying, it would, it would be insane, right, in LA. You just don't ever do that. 
Except when you know the entire community is at odds with the cops and then you can do any fucking thing you want. And that's exactly what happened. So um, I was in command of eight officers in two cars, four people per vehicle. I was in the lead vehicle and I was driving. That was my preference. We're driving down the road and there was a bunch of commercial buildings on the right side. I remember that. I, I could probably take you to where this happened, but I can't think of the street names right now. So driving down the street, commercial buildings on the right side. On the left side are apartment houses. And I'm driving along for blocks. And the sidewalk is absolutely, like, overflowing. All the residents, because you couldn't go anywhere, right? So it's like the SARS-CoV-2 lockdowns, right? Everybody's home. So they're all coming out on the sidewalk. And I'm going to guess probably about eh, a third of them had firearms in their possession out on the sidewalk, right? And we're, I'm driving along. My driver's side is to them, of course. So I'm looking at them, and they're looking at me. And I'm sure the unit behind us, same thing, right? So I'm looking at them, and they're looking at me. And, and it's this kind of, like, weird tension. It's like they're glaring at us, and I wasn't, but presumably, since we weren't smiling, the people on the sidewalk imagine we were glaring at them, right? And after about a block, I'm like, you know what? Fuck this. <laughs> so I roll down my window, and I stick my arm out the window, my left arm out the window. I turn my face to the crowd. I get a big smile on my face, and I start waving at them, right? You want to guess what happened? Yeah, like probably 70 or 80% of the people on the sidewalk, they started smiling and waving back at us, right? Oh, that's all it took. And I think that's really, I mean, I don't mean to project this beyond what happened at that moment, but I think that's a really important lesson for law enforcement in the community when they're odd. Sometimes perception is not reality. So as soon as I saw that response, I jumped on the radio and I said, hey guys, we're going to hang a UE, we're going to pull up and get out of the car. <laughs> I wish I could have read the minds of the other seven officers under my command at that moment. They were probably like, are you fucking kidding? Do you see all those guns? <laughs> anyway, we flipped a Yui, came up on their side of the street, put it in park, got out of the car. I walked up on the sidewalk, big smile on my face. Hey, guys, how you doing? Is everything cool? Do you need anything? Can I help? Uh, what can I do? Started shaking hands as I went down the line. And... Every single person that I interacted with, and we're talking me personally, probably 60 or 70 people over, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes. Uh, every single one of those people, they were gracious, they smiled, they appreciated that I, that I wanted to know if there was anything I could do to help. I didn't say a word about their firearms. I didn't say, hey, man, that's illegal. You can't do that. Take that back in the house. Nothing. Because that would have been fucking stupid. Uh, th th there was violence at hand, and they were not committing it, right? So why would I lecture them in the middle of a crisis about being in possession of a firearm, which happens to be an unalienable right, and I don't particularly care about all the little niggling details that have been built into the law over the last couple hundred years. It's an unalienable right. There was violence afoot, mass violence afoot. These people were out on the sidewalk with their guns. And clearly, from our interaction, they were no threat to me or my people or others similarly uniformed. Uh, and I'm so glad I did that because who knows what would have happened with other officers later after the sun went down. But I changed the entire dynamic. I assure you, I mean, I don't know this for a fact, but I assure you months later, people were still like, hey, 
Did I tell you what happened the day, the first day of the riots? Yeah, these cops actually got out and talked to us, and they were really cool. They shook our hands. They offered to help out in any way they could. Can you can you imagine that in the hood? Right? Really? That's my story for, that stands out of my mind from day one. This is probably. Ooh, maybe 5 p.m. on the very first day of the riots. Another story that stands out of my mind was on day two, I believe. <laughs> Some of it blurs together a little bit. It's funny the things that stand out vividly in my mind and things that not so much. So there was a small shopping center. It had like a restaurant anchored on one end, and it probably had, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 stores and then some other thing anchoring the other end. It wasn't very big, probably 100 yards end to end. So I'm sitting, I think it was at a Kaiser Permanente parking lot, me and my team. And we had pulled in there to observe. And of course, there's looting going on. So we kind of got our game plan together. And I remember I was driving a Chevy Caprice. And both of our units were in um, these ones. that Their police cars painted civilian colors. And everybody who cares knows it's a cop car from a block away, <laughs> even though it's not black and white. But so... I still remember, I jammed on the gas, I come flying across the street, I'm the lead car, and um, you know, I, I wanted to make an impression when we hit the parking lot, because you know it's looting, right? I want these people to scatter and get the fuck out of there, right? But I didn't realize the driveway was so steep, and what, like I say, it's funny what actually stands out in one's mind. I can still remember bottoming out that front suspension on, on going up that drive. I was like, whoa, I think I just knocked my rear teeth out. So anyway, I, we pull up, doors fly open, we leap out of the car um, without there being the perception of any deadly threat at that moment. Nobody's got guns out, at least not under my command. And so we've got our big old rechargeable mag lights back in the day. That was the thing in our hands. That was going to be our defensive weapon, provided nobody tried to invoke deadly force against us. So I come leaping out of the car and... Uh, Everybody starts scattering the bad guys, right? And, of course, if, if you can grab somebody who's, like, got, like, a toaster oven in their arms, <laughs> you, you want to do that, right? So some guy bolts. I forget why I started chasing him. But remember, the power's out, so everything is dark. So this guy bolts. He rabbits. And I start running after him. Let me be very clear. Like, back when I was in the Rangers, I mean, there were days that we did, like, 12-mile runs, but I was never fast. <laughs> when we did the beret run, uh, when I first got there, uh, shortly thereafter, when I did the beret run, it was five miles continuously, every mile being seven-minute miles. I, I almost died. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but it killed me. It killed me. So I'm not a fast runner. So, and, of course, a lot of street hoodlums are quick, and this guy was quick, and I'm not. And plus, I've got all this gear on, right? So I'm chasing this guy down the street, and I see him disappear. He makes a left turn and disappears behind what looks like a retaining wall. When I get closer, I realize it's a driveway going down under an apartment complex that had subterranean parking. And I'm looking down in there. It is like a pitch black hole. And I'm looking in there, and I'm like, okay, so the most I've got this guy for is potentially looting. And I'm going to take myself down to this dark hole where I don't know if he's armed, and if so, with what? I don't even know if there's other people down there that I don't want to know <laughs> in, in a completely dark environment. And, of course, flashlights in an environment like that are not necessarily helpful because you've got, you know, excluding what's behind you, you've got pretty much almost a 360 degree. So if you turn your light on, 
and you're lighting one particular direction, and your adversary is someplace else outside your cone of light, yeah, you've just highlighted where you are, but not where he is. So there's a whole lot of it that goes into that. And I was like, okay, so <clears throat> if I go down there, there's no doubt I am placing the loss of my life at an elevated risk for looting. So no. <laughs> and I turned around and walked my happy ass back to the car. And by that time, all the looters were gone and my team was standing around. But it's, it's just the kind of equations that one had to make in the moment where there was no backup, right? Um, I, I, I could have gotten on the radio and called a couple of my people who were, I don't know, probably three quarters of a block away. But by then, the guy would have been gone, and there was no, like, real backup. I mean, cops were stretched thin. Had I gotten on the radio and said, I need, I don't know, 10 units at my location, I would have gotten, <laughs> yeah, sure, who the fuck are you again? So, yeah, that was a non-option, and I think that the, the takeaway from that story is, in unusual circumstances, yeah, you have to make some intriguing choices about priorities. I'm not sure when this took place. I'm going to guess perhaps it was middle of the afternoon on day three. Down in, best of my recollection, somewhere in South Central. And LAPD had set up a command post. And the way they did that is, remember the old Western movies where they would circle the wagons? Well, LAPD had taken like, I don't know, I'm going to say like 20 school buses, long ass school buses. And they'd circle the wagons. They'd use a school bus in that manner. And so inside, they had their big uh, RV command center, their emergency command center. And they had, it was, <laughs> I look back, I'm like, what do you think you were facing? Or you think you were in Afghanistan or something? So they had sandbags at the gate and they had this thing, the, the, the arm that came down and went up to allow access into that inner sanctum. Uh, I had no interest in going in there. So we just stopped because there were pallets of water and things like that outside the bus line, right? The, the enclosure. So we pulled up and grabbed some water. We're kicking back, sitting on the hood of the car or whatever we're doing, you know, just hydrating before we go back out again. And a black and white pulls up, I'm going to say like 50 feet from me, beyond, goes beyond my car, about 50 feet. Two uniforms get out, they go to the trunk of the car, they unlock the car, they reach in the car, and much to my surprise, they pull out a body. They flop it on the ground, they get in the unit and drive away. Okay. <laughs> No paperwork, no explanation, nothing. Drop the body and go. The reason I share that story with you is to point out the utter and complete lack of accountability. The two uniforms in black and white would have thought it was completely acceptable to pull up, like, there's the command center right there, <laughs> to pull up, drop a body, no paperwork, no explanation. Okay, this guy's dead, so we're dropping the body off with nothing. <laughs> so when I talk about zero accountability during the riots, that sort of illustrates the phenomenon of which I'm speaking. With hindsight of almost 30 years, what are my thoughts about the 1992 Los Angeles riots? Uh, I fancy myself a historian. I, I have an absolute love of history. 30 years is not a lot of history, but I'd like to think that my studying history for the last 30 years gives me a frame of reference to look at something even as short a duration as 30 years. What I take away from that is that uh, society, I don't know in America we think things are supposed to be just above that, and that's total and utter bullshit. There will always, in my opinion, 
There will always be strife. There will always be dissension. There will always be the poor. There'll always be the poverty ridden. There'll always be the extremely wealthy. There'll always be the establishment. There'll always be the power structure. There'll always be the haves wanting government enforcement agents to keep the have-nots down and away. I, I think that's existed from time immemorial. As soon as there was society, I think that existed. I think we put a better face on it today. I think we dress it up prettier. We, we put the dress on the pig. But I don't think it's any different. So from time to time, we are going to have these kind of, I'll call them eruptions, right? Uh, things go along smooth, and then there's some rumbling, and then there's some more rumbling, and then some greater rumbling, and then it might get smooth again, and then some more rumbling comes along. And eventually something happens. In this case, it was the Rodney King incident and the acquittal of the officers. Eventually something happens, and suddenly the lid blows off. I think it's just the nature of the beast. What, 2020, there was some rioting. You know, and there's riots all over the world all the time. So with an eye to history and the, the way the establishment functions and the way societies have functioned for thousands of years. I don't get as bent out of shape about riots as a lot of people, especially hard right people. They're like, oh, let's kill all the rioters. They're like out of their fucking minds. I don't have that point of view. I'd like to think it would never happen. I know it's going to happen. I know they're actually, I don't say good reasons. I'm wrong. I'm not going to say good reasons. There are some real reasons, actual real reasons these kind of things kick off. Uh, will we ever solve those problems? Eh, who knows? I, while I'm a history of student, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you what tomorrow holds. Uh, but I wanted to share that experience, my experience of three days in the 1992 Los Angeles riots. I suppose I could say it was a formative experience for me because it revealed to me the truth of who I am when there's absolutely zero societal constraints upon me. I, can, I have the power and I can do any fucking thing I want. Now what am I going to do? And it taught me about me.